Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is David Perel, podcaster, writer, and teacher. We talk about how David got into writing, the discipline of content creation, and the art of rhetoric. David also tells us about how most experts have lots of blind spots and how taking advantage of these things can be very profitable. David Perel, how's everything going? Good. How are you? I am good. It's kind of a crazy time. What are you doing these days? I am building a writing curriculum. So I'm doing 100 articles in 100 days and... I am challenging myself to basically construct a system of writing. I grew up as a pretty bad writer and I've had to figure out a lot of things on my own and I've developed a system for teaching writing that we don't talk about anything your English teacher would talk about. We don't talk about grammar. We don't talk about (laughs) sentence structure. We don't talk about anything that you would read in a traditional writing book. And so what I'm trying to do is communicate really good writing advice in a way that doesn't sound like writing advice in a way that's fun and interesting. And so I'm doing one article a day. And through that, the goal is to develop a system that is unique and one of a kind. Okay. Well, so can you tell my audience, like, how did you get into doing this? Because you're a fairly young guy and you're now teaching people how to write, which you would think people would learn in school. But now, you know, it's become this thing for you, this uh, revenue generating thing. Like, how did you come upon this thing? How did you stumble into this career? Yeah, so it's a total miracle. I left college where I was a really bad writer. I remember having a conversation (laughs) with my girlfriend junior year and she looked at me straight up and she's just like, you're a horrible writer. (laughs) And this piece is awful. (laughs) And I got a C in my English writing class and felt really down on myself. And I remember calling home and saying, hey, can you introduce me to your friend who was a writing teacher at one of the high schools in San Francisco? Mm. And so I started talking to them. I never ended up actually doing tutoring with them, but that'll give you a sense of where I was in my life. Mm. And even when I started working in an advertising agency after school, a lot of the feedback I got was that I wasn't a great writer. And That was awful because I was working in sales. I was responsible for doing these pitch decks. And I remember one time I was in charge of doing a deck for Bacardi, the alcohol Mm. brand. Mm. And I used the word epic in Mm. the (laughs) PowerPoint slide. And my boss, in a very kind and constructive way, said, you can't be using the word epic. That, (laughs) That is a word that someone who is 21 years old and just graduated from college uses. And it's also one that you just used. And he wanted me to start writing differently. And I remember... And this big glass doors, guy's tall, probably six feet, four inches, kind of an intimidating guy. And I said, well, how can I improve my writing? And he said, you got to start reading just great writers. And there wasn't so much wisdom in that. But I remember leaving his office, walking back to my desk and in those 40 feet and over the next few weeks, just really committing myself to being a much better writer. Now, That was happening in parallel of a pretty profound realization where Peter Thiel, when he interviews people, he asks, what is a very important truth that you believe that other people wouldn't agree with you on? Mm. And for me, it's that writing online might be the biggest arbitrage opportunity in the world right now. Mm. In terms of in the last 15 to 20 years, 
the pipelines of distribution have totally opened up to people like you and like me or people all over the world who can share and communicate their ideas. And I have always believed that if I build an audience that is both sizably large and the kind of audience that is smart and sophisticated and that reflects my interests, that will be a leading indicator for many good things in my career. And so what I said was, let's take that insight. Let's actually improve on this writing practice. And four years later, I'm now teaching people to write and I've developed my own system. Wow. What a fantastic story. But I mean, how did you actually jump into doing the actual writing teaching? Because that's not easy. I mean, you and I talked about this a little bit, but it requires a lot of courage, a lot of like gumption almost, right? To be able to say, okay, I think I could teach people how to do this, even after people have validated that yourself can do it. Yeah. I've always loved performing and it's never really given me the bad kinds of nerves. I mean, I shake and I get butterflies in my stomach, but I don't get paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And I think it began in high school. I was playing golf at a decently high level and through playing in tournaments and stuff, I just had to get over the nerves and had to develop this relationship with myself of, hey, you got to be on. There's a lot riding on you. Mm -hmm. Figure it out. And then when I got to college, my sophomore year fall, I auditioned to be on the college television channel, and I ended up being sports director. So what I was responsible for was every single week, I had to produce a five-minute live television segment, and then me and a team that was working under me, we had to cover all the varsity sports for the Division One football, golf, soccer, you name it. Mm. And so going on live television is actually great training for teaching an online course. You're on, there's cameras rolling. And then that spring, I ended up auditioning and being accepted to be on a show called Elon Phoenix Weekly. Mm. And this sounds way more impressive than it actually was, <laughs> but that show aired on ESPN2 in North Carolina every single week. Oh. So I would come in on Wednesday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. I would have a script written out for me, and then a girl named Zora and I, we would come together. And then Sunday morning, I'd wake up after a night out partying, and I'd see myself on ESPN2, which was really cool. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting how the the whole content creation game has just absolutely changed with the internet because it used to be that you had all of these gatekeepers, right? Like the people at ESPN, for example, or the people at, you know, HarperCollins or, you know, newspapers or whatever. But it, I mean, the internet has completely changed things. Hasn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. And I realized that early. I remember sophomore, junior year of college, See, I was in Elon, North Carolina. I was mm -hmm. in a town of 5,000 people, and I'd grown up in San Francisco. So I was in this really weird place where I'm a pretty lumpy person in terms of my skill sets. Like, I'm really bad at a lot of things, almost like in a really annoying way. <laughs> and then I get obsessed with like a small number of things. Mm -hmm. And it was not great for school because school is geared towards the middle of the bell curve and the average student. Mm. And so for things that I was interested in, it went way too slow. Mm. And for things that I wasn't interested in, it went way too fast. <laughs> like I got a D minus in my computer science class <laughs> because I didn't do well on some of the early foundational materials in Java. Uh -huh. And next thing you know, 
look, I failed the class. Like uh-huh. I absolutely failed the class, but I went to so many office hours uh-huh. that I think the professor just felt sorry for me and gave me the D minus. <laughs> Actually, that was particularly bad because the night before the final, I had been up till 3 a.m. and I slept through the first hour and a half of the final <laughs> and disaster. But basically, there were subjects like like that. And then I remember my senior year, I got a C in a class called Entertainment Media, mm. and which is crazy because mm. I write about the topics <laughs> in that class. But I think that it speaks to my point in the struggles and the frustrations that I had in college of when I wasn't interested in something or wasn't good at something, it went too fast. And then something like entertainment media just went too slow. I got to see in it because I was bored. Mm -hmm. And so what Twitter, I remember having Mark Andreessen in my phone, sitting in my room in college and having Mark Andreessen's tweets just being right there. I was like, this is amazing. I remember Mm -hmm. getting really into Jonah Peretti at Buzzfeed Mm -hmm. and being one of the early subscribers to Ben Thompson at Stratechery. And Ben Thompson basically said something to the effect of the internet has a bigger scale than you think, even after you account for the fact that the internet has a bigger scale than you think. Mm -hmm. And I just, Munger has this quote where he says, take one idea and take it seriously and, or take a simple idea and take it seriously. And that's what I've done with the internet. I've just said, People are going to underestimate this and I'm just going to double down on the scale of the internet and just produce, produce, produce. And slowly but surely, if you actually create enough, good things happen. And I think that word create is important. That word publishing is what I encourage my students to do because if you want to get better at cooking, you cannot do that by just dining at a bunch of Michelin star restaurants. <laughs> like you cannot consume your way to high quality production. Mm-hmm. You become an excellent producer mm-hmm. by actually cooking mm-hmm. and by testing and refining and getting feedback from people. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to become a brilliant chef, you have to actually cook. If you want to become an excellent writer, you have to actually write. Mm-hmm. And I have no more talent probably less talent than the average writer, mm-hmm. but I've just written and published a hell of a lot more than almost anyone I know. It's interesting because you do come from a golf background Mm -hmm. and, you know, repetitions there are just so critical. And what I'm seeing in your description of how you became a better writer is just tons and tons of rep. It's no crazy secret, you know, no, you know, four hour work week. Here's how you do it or something like that. It's just rep after rep after rep. And I mean, you're in the middle of it right now, 100 articles in 100 days. How did that sort of affect like, did golf sort of like give you that mentality or something like that? No question. Yeah. Golf is I am taking the work ethic that I developed in golf and trying to bring that into writing. Basically, my junior and senior year of high school, when I was trying to go play division one in college and get recruited, which ended up happening, there were days where I arrived at the golf course when there were stars in the sky and I left when there were stars in the sky. <laughs> I was there all day and the club that I used to play had had the most delicious burgers. And so I would just play and I'd eat those burgers, play and eat those burgers. These burgers, they were like hot dogs. Mm-hmm. So they were in a hot dog bun and then they had the same shape as a hot dog. And they, like the Olympic Club, is famous for their burgers. And this course, they hosted five U.S. Opens. And my junior membership was $52 a month. So it was just like the best deal ever. And so I would just spend all day out there. And, you know, there was something that really interesting that 
happened when I was playing golf that I think bled into a bit of what you're asking here of why I felt confident enough to teach writing. Mm. So golf is going through this transition where golf historically, and you can see it because of the age, because of just the stuck-upness conservatism of the people who play, often not in a good way, the incumbents basically have not been able to adapt to changes. And so what happened was when I first started out, I was with a more traditional coach and we were talking all about feel and golf is like real art and, and all of this. And then I started playing really badly my junior year of high school. I remember shooting 91 in a tournament, finishing in last place and basically saying, I can't do this anymore. Mm. And so I ended up switching coaches mm. and I ended up working with a guy named Terry Rolls. Mm. And Terry is well on his way to becoming one of the top 10 instructors in the world. Mm. He's already top 50. And we started and, and was working with PJ Tour Pros. He had the world's largest collection of slow motion golf swings, which mm. is how he built up his brand. Mm. And so we started using military grade launch monitors to track the physics of my ball flight. Mm. We ended up putting these computers on my body to <laughs> measure my body rotation and how I was moving. And then I was working with the ideas from what's called the Titleist Performance Institute to basically work with the biomechanics of motion and try to do cutting edge fitness too. And so with those three things, I was able to both get better at golf in such a more efficient way, but more importantly, look at the industry, watch what the announcers on TV were talking about mm -hmm. and realize that the incumbents had a not just a misguided view of how the golf swing worked, but a backwards view of how the swing worked and the physics of the game. They didn't understand that. And so I saw this massive delta between the cutting edge of what was happening in golf and what most people did. And when you're in high school and you have a moment like that where you can look at experts, realize that they don't know what they're talking about. Actually, there's a very apt metaphor here to the way I think that you talk about Bitcoin, where you see things about the way the economy works mm -hmm. with Austrian mm -hmm. economics versus the Keynesian intuition that mm -hmm. a lot of people who set economic policy think through. And you can basically look through crypto and you can say, wait, what we're doing, it isn't just like five, 10 degrees off. Mm -hmm. It is 180 degrees backwards. Mm -hmm. I had that experience with golf. Mm -hmm. And now I've had a lot of that experience with writing, not as much of the backwardness, but I think it speaks to what gave me the agency to start teaching writing, that kind of idea, I now see when it comes to writing education. It's just not good. Yeah. I mean, it kind of like sounds like sabermetrics for golf or something that you discovered. And we know how that's absolutely revolutionized baseball. But yeah, I was thinking when you were saying that, you know, even computer science education, you told me that you were programming in Java. And I'm just like base palming hard because usually what a lot of computer science curriculums do is they teach you stuff that you don't really need to know, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's the most efficient sort or something like that. I mean, it's nice for sort of like a brain exercise, but in a way, like the much more important things are learning how to do source control or mm -hmm. how to, you know, integrate new packages or figure out how to use a library or how to, you know, like just patterns on those levels and not 
okay, here's this exotic algorithm for, you know, spanning a binary tree or something like that. And that too is kind of like that. As you go progress in your career, there is something where you realize, okay, a lot of people don't know what they're doing mm-hmm. and they're teaching based on like they're fighting the last war or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like stuff that was relevant 20 or 30 years ago. Where do you see that for stuff like writing and other content creation? Yeah, I think that what I would do is just go down one layer of abstraction and mm-hmm. talk about how in school we tend to teach theory before practice. But mm-hmm. I think generally you want to start with practice and then move back to theory. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about Java. And from what I understand, Java is sort of more foundational and elemental to how software works. You can argue that. I mean, the thing is like Java became popular 20 years ago as a teaching language and they just don't want to change. That's Hmm. the thing. Like if you want to, you know, teach like type safety and stuff like that, I think you should really be teaching in Rust or something. If you want to get them more interested in making stuff, then you should probably teach in Python. The fact that they're still stuck on Java tells me Okay, there's some professors that are just way too comfortable and probably have tenure and don't really care about like changing up the curriculum to be something more modern. Yeah, almost certainly. I mean, I think that writing is different in that the ideas are a bit more timeless Mm. than computer science Mm. just due to the way that technology changes. But there are some things with writing that are structurally different. Mm. So, for example, the poet Mary Oliver, she used to write while she walked in the woods. And Mm. I love that idea Mm. where she would walk around with a notebook and all that. I now know a lot of people, myself included, who often write while walking. Mm. And rather than carrying a notebook, you just take notes in your phone. Mm. But I think that that then gets into some of the ways that writing has fundamentally changed is let's talk about two things. Let's talk about note-taking and the Mm. hyperlink. Mm. So note-taking is... It's crazy to me that like I was talking to a friend a couple days ago and he showed me that after his junior year of high school, he burned his notes Mm -hmm. with a friend as just because he was never going to use the notes again. And that was just like the assumed thing. So he showed me a photo with his notes in the fire. And it is wild to me that you wouldn't start building a note-taking system in high school and college and then use the time where you're learning to compile those notes to save the best ideas that you have. Mm. And what's great about notes is that as the number of notes you save increases linearly, the connections that you can make between them increases exponentially. So then what you end up doing is you end up building a web of ideas that you can always borrow from. Mm. And Once you then have notes, what you're doing is rather than writing from a place of scarcity where you Mm. sit down at your computer and you say, huh, what should I be writing about today? You're writing from a place of abundance where writing is less a process of creating things and Mm. trying to come up with ideas from scratch and much more of a process of curating your own ideas and creating a collage of existing ideas that you've already written down that you can save that you can then repackage and put into a single place and when people begin to have that writing and really writer's block just begins to disappear writing itself becomes much easier that's the first thing that's really changed Mm -hmm. that the establishment writers they aren't really focused on the second thing i was talking about the hyperlink Mm -hmm. and this one will be a little bit shorter but it's worth taking seriously what the hyperlink has done because What it allows you to do is 
say that I talk about, I have an idea called personal monopolies mm -hmm. and I am about to publish an essay. And towards the end, my editor said, what is a personal monopoly? Can you explain this? Mm. No, I won't explain it in the piece because <laughs> if you actually try to explain everything, you end up losing the thread and the momentum of the piece. And mm. this is why a lot of books can be quite boring. Like if mm. you're advanced, mm. then often they're just too basic because they just try to explain everything, right? You don't need to understand how a new Bitcoin is created like that. You already know that. But then if you're a beginner, if they don't explain that, then you lose mm -hmm. your groundedness with the piece. And so what the hyperlink allows you to do is you can then link to your own stuff mm. and you can sort of create this background baseline of knowledge where then you can keep momentum. And mm. then for the average person who might not know as much, they can understand what is the context that I need to understand the writing. Mm. That's a very simple thing. Oh, it's just a hyperlink, mm -hmm. but it's worth taking very seriously what the hyperlink has done for writing, mm. because it means that your writing should be shorter, it should be crisper. Mm. And then as a writer, what you're doing is you kind of create your intellectual building blocks and your foundation, and then you can just continue to link back to those mm. rather than explaining them over and over and over again. And traditional writing, instruction has no concept for explaining that. Yeah, I mean, definitely sounds like something in the realm of technology has made this possible and no one's really taking advantage of it in the way that they should. And, you know, hyperlinks in particular, I think are something like, you know, they had the concept like 80 years ago, mm -hmm. something like that. And just it didn't come to fruition until the internet was created. So how does that affect your writing? Because, you know, I think you basically describe the process of carving away instead of having to put new things in. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that look like? How does that change? Author named Raymond Chandler. He used to sit on his typewriter mm. and he'd write on note cards instead of paper. Mm. And his rule was that something had to happen on every single note card. <laughs> and that is a very apt metaphor for how I think about online writing, mm. where the attention spans are shorter in a way in that people don't have the same patience to sit through moments of dullness where nothing happens mm. like they used to. But at the same time, the longest essays I've ever written are my most popular ones. So people are still, at least the readers that you want, are absolutely able to get through extremely long stretches of writing if they have a bump, 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 bump cadence mm -hmm. rather than something that's a bit slower and uh, less beats per minute, insights mm -hmm. per minute. And so I love that Raymond Chandler idea. What I try to do is say, let's say every 300 words, have some new insight, some mm -hmm. new epiphany, and just overwhelm people with a density of information that they've never seen before. Mm. And I am always trying to remove the fluff, things that aren't as concise as they can be. And by doing so, I want what people to get in my 10,000 word essays to mm -hmm. just be an order of magnitude more density of insight than what they're used to reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this probably applies also to other forms of content, right? Like videos sure. and podcasts and things like that. Hopefully we're having that sort of cadence right now where coming up with at least like a new idea every couple of minutes or something. How do you think that's changed videos, for example, or, you know, I guess podcasts or anything audio? Yeah, I think that it's 
important with podcasts. It's something I'm trying to do here, just trying to get to what is my point. And I always think of when I speak with friends, you could think of two cones. There's like a divergence cone. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure out what am I trying to say here? Mm -hmm. And then there's a convergence cone Mm -hmm. where you now know where you're going and you're converging in on an idea. Mm -hmm. When you're talking with friends, Mm -hmm. divergence is okay. When you're on a podcast... (laughs) I try to start every single answer with convergence. Mm. And then I was talking to my roommate. He was a nationally ranked debater. And we were talking on Saturday night. And he said, one of the things that you want to do is you want to signpost every single idea when you speak. Mm. So what that means is you start off by saying, now I'm going to present this (laughs) argument. Then what you do is you present the argument and then you kind of come back right at the end Mm -hmm. and you just summarize what you've said. Mm -hmm. And so with audio, there's a circularity to audio. Mm -hmm. So what you see in a lot of speeches is a repetitiveness Mm -hmm. where you are saying the same general theme over and over again and always kind of coming back to that. Mm -hmm. So if you listen to Obama as Mm -hmm. he was going through the presidential election, Yes, we can. Mm. Yes, we can. Mm-hmm. And so he would end every single argument with, mm-hmm. yes, we can. Then you saw the same thing with mm-hmm. Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. I have a dream. I have a dream, <laughs> right? You get that circularity mm-hmm. and it creates a repetition and a memorability that you need through audio. And mm-hmm. this is why we can hear the same biblical verses over mm-hmm. and over again. This is why we can, in a sermon, Mm -hmm. there will be the same themes that are repeated because audio and video need a little bit more of that. Whereas Mm -hmm. the written word is much more about saying the same thing in ways that don't look like you're saying the same thing at all. (laughs) Yeah. And there's definitely something about that that helps you sort of absorb it. Right. And I think what we're talking about here is that art of rhetoric, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a big part of writing that really isn't taught very much. Mm -hmm. And And hopefully you have some insight into how to do that. But uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of rhetoric in content creation? Yeah. Get on Twitter. (laughs) And the reason I say that is you realize how small changes in what you say Mm -hmm. impact the spread of an idea. Mm -hmm. And people, the world rewards people not who are have the best ideas, but who are the best at communicating the ideas that exist. And the ultimate fusion when it comes to communication, where like a particle accelerator, you you smash two things together and you create some new element, is people who are both creative and can communicate their vision, their expertise. That's how you get the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, the people like Elon Musk. And that is how they're able to create movements out of what they start. And I see it in particular with software developers, actually, (laughs) they doubt the power of rhetoric. Mm. And there's a reason that the Greeks focused on rhetoric when they taught these are timeless ideas. And you could almost think of the brain as like a series of puzzle pieces Mm. and unique good rhetoric allows your puzzle piece to match the structure of the way that the brain wants to consume ideas. Mm. And what you want to do is you want to study rhetoric enough that then you can transcend the rules. When Mm. you follow the ideas like using alliterations Mm -hmm. or repetition too closely. It sounds like these cheap (laughs) tricks, this purple prose that actually distracts from what you're doing. Mm. But every now and then you can actually 
you've absorbed the ideas so much where you use them unconsciously. You get to this place of unconscious competence and you have to practice using rhetoric and following the tropes of what people have done in the past. You know, like I love the JFK line of ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. You could sort of see how those two uh -huh. things are opposite uh -huh. and how the words are sort of flipped around. Yeah. And you see that in to be or not to be like that sort of rhythm and the pattern and the mirroring trick. But if you use that too purposefully, it it's cheap. And so it's about studying rhetoric well enough to have that come out with in your writing without even realizing it. Yeah. So for our audience, I think the only real piece of rhetoric that they've really seen are memes, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like weaponized rhetoric yeah. in a sense. How do you get better at something like that? Because I think for a lot of people, they see an effective meme they or effective rhetoric, they can instantly recognize it. But what's difficult is figuring out how to create something like that, because mm -hmm. it is just absolutely powerful. And mm -hmm. I mean, you can argue that the last presidential election was largely decided on, you know, rhetorical bombs and memes. So how do you get better? Practice and <laughs> feedback. I think that a lot of, you know, you hear practice, you're like, okay, so what am I going to do? Try a hundred, try a mm thousand -hmm. times. And I think it's feedback. You know, you talk about a presidential election. One of the reasons that Donald Trump goes to different cities mm -hmm. and gives these live speeches, and he did it throughout his presidency, he didn't mm -hmm. just do it towards the end, mm -hmm. is he's trying to get instant feedback on what are people applying to? What are the the times where he says something and there's silence in the room, where people are confused. He's trying to figure out what are people responding to. That is feedback. Mm -hmm. When Chris Rock goes and does a comedy special mm -hmm. on Netflix, mm -hmm. he is on at the end. Mm -hmm. And you say, wow, it looks like it's his first time doing this. Mm -hmm. No, he's probably done 50 to 70 different shows mm -hmm. at comedy clubs around the country. And one of the great parts of living in New York is you get to go see comedians in small clubs doing horribly and then you watch the Netflix special a year and a half later and it's good because they've refined the idea. Mm -hmm. I remember at Cycle where I used to work, we made a four minute documentary about a comedian going to three different clubs throughout mm -hmm. the night and just refining the ideas. He's writing X's, he's writing mm -hmm. check marks for what ideas worked and that is how you practice. No what I've noticed, I was talking to some friends last night because I wrote a Twitter thread about Bryson DeChambeau after mm -hmm. he won the U.S. Open, and it looks like it's going to get a million impressions. Mm -hmm. And I thought when I pressed tweet all on that tweet storm mm -hmm. that this was going to be like a 17 liker, <laughs> just like just for me uh -huh. and just a whole vanity thread. And uh -huh. it's going to end up being one of the most popular threads I've ever published. Mm -hmm. My point in saying this is that in six years of writing, my intuition about what's going to be popular and what's going to resonate has gotten no better, <laughs> no better. I guess maybe the average has moved over, uh -huh. like the distribution has shifted right in terms of popularity and in terms of what resonates. But in terms of knowing what that fat right tail is, it is astonishing to me. I never know. And so my point is that what you want to do is you want to produce all the time and get feedback. And so for people who are saying, well, I can't speak like a president and have those crowds. I can't be like a comedian, do 70 shows. Get on Twitter. Twitter <laughs> is the instant feedback. It is one of, at the level of the sentence, it is the greatest writing instruction tool ever invented. I never thought of stand-up comedy as sort of like a test of rhetoric in a way, because it's really about 
testing people's emotional reaction mm -hmm. to something. And what you're saying about like these stand-up comedians and what they do, it actually sounds like the process of revising a piece of writing. Right? Mm -hmm. Like it's like, you know what, that sentence doesn't work. Exactly. Let's let's go and change that and, and so forth. How would you say that applies to something like video? Because that to me is like the nut that I haven't cracked yet. I don't know how you get it to be popular or how you what rhetorical devices are available and how people consume it or where their emotional attachments in that stuff comes through. I'm still not sure and I've struggled with this and I have one data point. It's that after I got laid off from my job, I made a YouTube video every single day for 114 days in a row. <laughs> And at the end, I had a grand total of 31 subscribers. It was a total failure. And I have no sense for the sort of YouTube language of what works and what doesn't. And so Brian Eno, a musician who's kind of credited with creating ambient music, he came out with an album called Music for Airports that did really well. And then sort of a more rock and roll style album that I love called Another Green World. Mm. But when it comes to his ambient music, what he does is he creates the music and he's learned from experience that the listener needs roughly double the time that a creator feels like they've needs like they need after they've spent time making the music. Mm. So after every song, right when he finishes, he'll take a four minute track, make it a five, make it 10 minutes mm. and just doubles the length of the song. And I think that the insight here as it pertains to video is, and this is where I went wrong with those YouTube videos. They were mm. way too fast. Mm. There was a slowness, and a deliberation that the viewer needed with video that I don't think I appreciated. Mm. With that said, the hard part is using that slowness to create suspense mm. and air mm. in the movie without let it becoming without let it become boring. Basically, mm. I think that a lot of Quentin Tarantino's movies mm -hmm. drag on for way too long. <laughs> and I think that there's a certain kind of viewer that loves a Tarantino movie with like the way that Hateful Eight just went on and on and on. Same thing with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's mm -hmm. just character development mm -hmm. until like the last 30 minutes. It's too much for me. Mm -hmm. But there are other movies like Interstellar where if they didn't have music, they would be extremely slow, but the way that the music kind of creates a rhythm and creates an energy, creates conflict and creates anticipation for what's about to happen, mm. that is really important in video. And it's something that I have no idea how to do. <laughs> yeah. So what you're describing reminds me of something that I know from photography. Um, so I've, I've been into photography for, but it's this concept of white space. Yes. Right? If you're, if you're composing a shot and you just have too much going on, exactly. it's very hard for you to like emotionally connect with it because you're busy looking at something. And, you know, if you put the right amount of white space and sometimes like pictures can be like almost 80, 90% white space and that mm -hmm. could be the shot. But it gives the viewer some sort of room to breathe or something like that. And good writing has this too, where yeah. there's just sort of like a rhythm to it where you have something emotional and then you give them a chance to relax. Not necessarily like a chance to fall asleep, but sort of emotional, like sort of you're taking them on a roller coaster. Right. It needs both ups and downs. And that's something that 
I wish I knew more about how to control because in a sense, it's that stuff isn't really taught to you, right? Like you, usually the instinct is to just go a hundred miles per hour and boom, 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 and give them everything. But I think what you're saying with respect to video in particular is that you need to space it out a little bit and give them some time to digest. Right. So remember what I said earlier about, and this is why it's hard to teach writing. Mm -hmm. Remember what I said earlier about the note card thing? Mm -hmm. I believe that. And I believe what you just said about Mm -hmm. creating conflict. Mm -hmm. Both of those things are true. Mm -hmm. And so writing instruction isn't about telling somebody what to do. Mm -hmm. It is much more like creating a hammock Mm -hmm. where you swing between two competing ideas Mm -hmm. and you find at what level on the shift from left to right Mm -hmm. and left to right, you should actually settle in for Mm -hmm. what you're trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to do is I try to give really opinionated, almost contradictory Mm -hmm. advice, Mm -hmm. give it to people and say, (laughs) now figure out what is in the middle. And then you train that intuition over time and people develop a feel for where in the middle you want to end up. Mm -hmm. And I think that that fundamentally is, I think a lot of the struggle of what it means to create art of trying to find what is that proper buildup. Because mm-hmm. I know certain songs, like there's a song called Sea of Voices by Porter Robinson. Mm-hmm. The first like two and a half minutes is just build up, build up. And it's almost just like three, four sounds over and over mm-hmm. again, slightly, slightly, slightly <laughs> louder. And then I don't know if you've ever had the horrible head shaking experience of listening to a EDM mix of the best bass drops of the year. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. And I think it's because it's all drops. Yeah. Right. It, there, when there's no buildup, the drop doesn't have the same sweetness and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And you want somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. of those drops are great. They're mm-hmm. the best parts, but without the actual buildup, they mm-hmm. don't give you that dopamine rush that makes an EDM drop just incredible when you're listening to it. Yeah, there's an idea from a C.S. Lewis book. Mm. I think it was Paralandro or something like that, where he's eating some fruit and once in every 10 fruits, there's this especially delicious thing. Mm. And he remarks that if this were on earth, they would just figure out how to make the really delicious one and give everyone that. But the sweetness of that extra sweet one is that much sweeter because it only comes around once in a while. And there's something really profound about not having access or like having sort of like a high and a low and that the lows make the highs high, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. There is something about that, that as content creators, we kind of have to be very cognizant of, isn't it? Absolutely. There's no question. And I think that the, there's two ways to interpret what you just said. And the first way, which I don't think is true, is make the other nine fruits bad. Mm. That's not the point here. Mm. It's about, you know what it's like? It's like having a 10-course dinner Mm -hmm. where if you go out to a fancy meal, there's a cadence and a rhythm Mm. where each one sort of builds upon itself. Mm. And you end up getting to a place at the end where the dessert Mm -hmm. and the sweetness has been built up by a savory flavor (laughs) before. And that's very purposeful. Mm. But the 10th dish isn't great because the others were terrible. Mm -hmm. It's great because the other ones set up Mm -hmm. to that epic and memorable 10th dish. Mm -hmm. And that is the challenge as a creator to make the buildup not 
less good, but mm-hmm. to make it a buildup, a mm-hmm. series of concentric steps mm-hmm. where what you end up with is something grand and memorable. Yeah, it's something about completing the entire thing, right? Like giving a sense of closure and like people get addicted to the part or think that the, I guess the climax was what made them happy when in fact it was the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And I see this in art all the time where you'll watch like a movie that's really, really good and think, okay, well, I can just watch the scene. It's not quite the same. I mean, I love The Matrix, but you know, that scene with red pill, blue pill, all that is absolutely classic. But you can't just watch that in isolation because it has meaning with Mm -hmm. everything else. So what's your advice on that, right? Like, how do you make art that's actually complete instead of trying to get all these home runs? I think that one of the big things that people don't realize about writing Mm. is how much the cadence of writing mirrors the cadence of speech. Mm. And when you're having a conversation with somebody, Mm. you are getting a lot of the instant feedback that we were talking about. Mm. And so, for example, last week I interviewed the world's top math YouTuber, Mm. three blue, one brown. Mm. And we were talking about how he creates videos. Mm. And I asked him a very similar question. Mm. And he said that what he does before all of his most difficult videos is he does live instruction with people. Mm -hmm. He'll take somebody, he'll video the conversation Mm -hmm. and pay attention to what's confusing, Mm -hmm. what's interesting. In Rite of Passage, we use an acronym called CRIBS, Mm -hmm. C-R-I-B-S. Stands for what's confusing, Mm -hmm. repeated, Mm -hmm. interesting, boring, and surprising. Mm -hmm. And if you can look across those five vectors, you can get a lot of information. Mm -hmm. Because if something's confusing, you change the wording. If it's repeated, you delete it. Mm -hmm. If it's insightful, Mm -hmm. you double down on it. Mm -hmm. If it's boring, Mm -hmm. you will change your wording. Mm -hmm. And then if it's surprising, that is that face drop thing. Mm -hmm. So then what you're doing is you're trying to build up to make the satisfaction of surprise greater and greater. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to writing, I have no idea how to do it. I couldn't tell you anything. (laughs) But when it comes to writing in terms of how you actually implement it, Mm -hmm. talk to people about what you're going to say, talk about it over and over again. I do this with my long form essays. Mm I do not publish a long form essay Mm. until every single person I talk to says, whoa, Mm -hmm. I have Mm -hmm. never thought of it like that before. Mm -hmm. And until I can do that with the smartest people I know, I know it's not ready to publish, Mm -hmm. but that's how I test long form essays. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what the actual cadence is Mm -hmm. in writing, but if I can do it with speech, it's more than good enough. Hmm. Interesting. So speech is sort of like a preparatory thing for your writing. Exactly. Okay. All right. So let's go on a slightly different topic and talk about what I would call fiat education or sort of Uh, like the tired way in which this stuff is taught. Because I think the stuff that we've been talking about is stuff that's probably been known to a lot of people over time, but somehow it doesn't come through in our education. So what's going on, you think? Writers are trained to be academics. (laughs) It's as simple as that. I mean, what you see Mm. is that let's just say that you totally succeeded at every single step Mm. of the academic system. Mm. You would probably end up as an academic. Mm. And there is a style of writing that's rewarded in the academy Mm. that if you think of the efficient frontier between clarity and precision, Mm. they are all the way over on precision Mm. at the expense of clarity. Mm. That is the 
steel man case for why academic writing is good. I still think academic writing is awful. Mm -hmm. But what academic writing does very well is it is extremely precise. And you Mm -hmm. see that in terms of all the sub clauses in in academic writing and all the hedging. I mean, what you have basically is you have a short assertion, Mm -hmm. then they hedge that assertion, and then they hedge the hedge (laughs) all the time. And I've color-coded examples Uh of how this is true. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to business writing, what you have with, say, the pyramid principle is you say what you're going to say right Mm -hmm. at the top, then Mm -hmm. you basically summarize what you're going to say, and then you explain what you're going to say. So you have that pyramid Mm -hmm. where you go short, medium, long, And you say the same thing three times. And then online writing is totally orthogonal to how the academy thinks. Mm. I mean, you talk about, okay, why do people hate to write? Mm. Why did people like me write for 16 years in school and say, this sucks? Mm. You go 16 years doing some of your hardest, most difficult thinking. Mm. And one person, your teacher reads what you're going to (laughs) write. What a unsatisfying thing. Mm, Yeah. Whereas when you write online, you can have, I'm going to have more than 2 million people look at my site this Mm -hmm. year. And I'm not doing it because I want people to read only. I don't just merely get satisfaction out of people reading my stuff. The numbers have some kind of diminishing value. Mm. But you know what? If only one person mm. – I'm sorry. I mean I enjoy hanging out with you. But if you're the only person <laughs> who ever read my writing, I wouldn't work this hard. Uh-huh. There's no way. Mm. It is the publishing mm. and the instant feedback on that publishing and the competition for the attention of really smart people mm. that makes this a beautiful challenge and forces you to get really good at what you're doing. Yeah, I feel like the thing that a lot of them are missing is that, you know, writing, at least when they were growing up, had a lot of gatekeepers and you couldn't get out to an audience until you pass through those gatekeepers. Whereas now it's all open. And as long as you, you know, you can sort of like test your way into getting a large audience. Just you try something and if it works, then you try more of that. If it doesn't work, you stop doing that. Mm -hmm. It's this weird well, it's not weird. I guess it's natural. It's this, you know, market feedback essentially that you can get to grow your audience and get them to see things that maybe the previous generation it was like completely not what they saw. Yeah. So, I know what people are thinking because mm-hmm. this is exactly what my students say. Mm-hmm. So, someone out there is thinking, "Wait, so then all you do is write for an audience." <laughs> that is not what we're saying at all. And the metaphor here is it's a dance. Mm-hmm. That what you're doing is you have taken somebody by the hand and you are now dancing. Mm. And you are leading the dance. But the two of you have to work in lockstep. Mm-hmm. If you move too fast mm-hmm. and the other person begins to stumble, don't do that again or move at a different speed next time. Mm-hmm. And what you're trying to do is create a rhythm and a flow between you and the dancer that you're with. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to create something elegant with twirls and you're spinning people around and mm-hmm. there's beautiful music that you're trying to create, but you are in control. Mm-hmm. And so what you're doing is you're paying attention to where your partner stumbles, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you are saying, this is where I want to go next. And it's the same thing with writing online. Mm-hmm. So you are getting that market feedback. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you are then 
trying to just become BuzzFeed or the <laughs> Huffington Post, whatever's just the most popular gets the most views. That's not it at all. Because then the audience is in control. You are in control, but you listen to your dance partner. Mm. Well, so that brings up something that's sort of like the elephant in the room whenever you talk about content creation, and that's monetization, right? Like that currently is almost entirely by ads. How do you see that affecting the current landscape and how do you see that possibly changing? Here's what I know to be true. The wealthiest people in the 21st century are going to be people who have audiences. Mm. Now, when it comes to the actual mechanics of monetization, there's three things that I see. There's advertising, there's subscriptions, and there's audience-first, influencer-driven products. Mm -hmm. And in order, what I just said from advertising to subscription to products mm -hmm. is from least to most profitable over a long amount of time. The advertising industrial complex is both awful and amazing. Mm -hmm. It is amazing in the sense, and this is way under discussed. Mm -hmm. It is amazing in the sense of how it gives information to millions of people who wouldn't be able to afford information. Mm -hmm. And if you take seriously that information and knowledge is access and is like George Gilder would argue that knowledge is wealth, mm -hmm. then the advertising industry basically subsidizes your learning. Mm. The problem is, and this gets into an idea that I have called the paradox of abundance. Mm. What abundant markets that are advertising driven do mm. is they shift the average or really the median left in mm. terms of the median information consumer mm. has a much harder time finding good information and is basically just swimming in infested waters of BS and junk mm -hmm. and knowledge that will rot your brain. Mm. But at the same time, what happens is there is a small segment of people who are able to use the internet to do incredible things, mm. often at a young age and without paying a lot of money. Mm. I have a friend from rural Ireland mm. and at 14 years old, he decided that he wanted to be the youngest person in, in human history to build a nuclear fusion reactor. <laughs> he didn't end up doing it. He ended up being like the third youngest, God forbid, <laughs> and did it in his dad's garage only using Reddit and free YouTube videos. Oh, wow. That is the good stuff with advertising. And that's the interesting paradox of, of abundance that the median goes one way, mm -hmm. gets worse in terms of the information that they consume. And a small segment of people are basically the best in information consumers in human history. You see the same thing with fitness. Mm. If you go to a city, you see these Greek gods of people <laughs> who work out at Equinox and they have beautiful six pack abs uh -huh. and they walk around like they're on Photoshop uh -huh. basically. And then if you go to middle America, you see 71.6% of Americans over the age of 20 are overweight. Mm. And so you have this weird shift in food and in information. So that's advertising. And I'll be quick with subscription and products. So now with subscription, you're seeing the rise of Substack and an increasing willingness for people to pay for information, which is great. Mm. But there's going to be a bundle there because the amount that people are spending on these subscriptions is absolutely unsustainable. I mean, you have people who are spending more on subscriptions than 
most household items of like all their food <laughs> budgets combined. And what we're going to see is an increasing willingness for people to pay for subscriptions. And rather than the media organization controlling the relationship with the consumer, mm -hmm. the power is going to the individual, individual writers and creators, and they're going to be able to control that and actually prove how much they're worth by the money that they create. Mm -hmm. Journalists, writers have been way underpaid, mm -hmm. but they haven't had that direct relationship with the customer mm -hmm. until now. That's subscriptions, but the most profitable thing, if you want to be a creator who builds a multi-billion dollar business, you got to build a product. Mm -hmm. That's how you do it. And what you want to do is build a product that transcends your name. So Balaji Srinivasan has this idea called the founding influencer. And I love this idea. And what the founding influencer does is more and more companies are going to start with an influencer and they're going to build a product that goes beyond their name. So you might have Kylie Jenner instead of building a Kylie Jenner brand. You know, she kind of goes beyond that builds Kylie cosmetics. Mm -hmm. Ryan Re Reynolds doesn't build Ryan Reynolds alcohol. He builds aviation gym. Mm. Then you have Nathan Berry, who's building a company called ConvertKit. But Nathan started based off his audience. Now, ConvertKit is an email competitor, sort of that's halfway between MailChimp and Substack. And I think that's going to be a multi-hundred million dollar company. And so what you do is you start with the influencer. Influencer builds a product, but the product can grow beyond their name. And that's how you make it happen. Here's another example, Jessica Alba and The Honest Company. Wow. That whole idea of sort of bringing your audience with you to like a new business, essentially, I think mm -hmm. is what you're talking about. I can definitely see that being the way to monetize. That said, I'm curious as to think about how this changes, I guess, more as, you know, you have sound money and things like that. Because to a large degree, a lot of this advertising spend, a lot of this uh, content creation is you know, kind of junk, like what you were saying. And it's all there largely to sell products or like, you know, it, it's advertising in a different form almost. And that's, I think, what you were describing with the muddied waters of all this junk. And, you know, you only need to look at, you know, all the crypto publications and just look at the number of articles that have, that are complete, you know, nonsense to know that, the real good content is actually pretty rare as a result of that. I mean, do you see the current sort of system affecting the level of content? Do you see a correlation there or, is it, or am I missing something? I don't know. I wish I, I mean, I love the Bitcoin standard. And I think that one of my favorite ideas in that was the idea of time horizons. I think time horizons are extremely underrated and under discussed as a mechanism that drives people. And you said something interesting in terms of how what you said was framed of the quality, qu finding quality content that's crypto related is rare. Mm. And I just sort of want to zoom in on that mm. as a percentage mm. of content created. The average crypto publication is trash. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there is an, overwhelming amount of the absolute number of mm. incredible thinking mm. on cryptocurrencies. Mm. And so this is why there's ideas out there like curators are the new creators mm. and why actually 
curating your information environment to have really high quality signals is important mm -hmm. because if you do that, other people filter out the junk for you mm -hmm. and you can end up with those rare as a percentage, mm -hmm. but abundant as an absolute number articles mm -hmm. that make this the best time ever to be an autodidact. Yeah, but I mean, it turns out that most people are consuming yeah. junk food while, you know, there's a few people that are eating lots of steaks. Like, yeah. <laughs> how do you sort of, I don't know if you want to uh, get into manipulating, you know, society so that they eat healthier or something like that. But there, I do sense that there's something related to fiat. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about exactly how that would work. But there does seem to be some correlation between sort of this fiat money and people wanting to consume junk that actually just reinforces their own opinion or mm -hmm. where they don't have to think very hard, they can be lazy and just be entertained, something like that. Where do you see the correlation? Well, you were pretty descriptive in that, you know, pretty much everything. There's like 90% is junk, but there's an over production of that junk. Yeah. But there like from an absolute number standpoint, there's plenty of really, really good content. How much of that content creation is dominated by, I don't know, less than savory characters that, you know, I mean, like the BuzzFeeds of the world, right? Listicles or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, that's dominating content today. And like most of them don't actually do anything. It's the equivalent of eating a Twinkie and it doesn't do anything. You know, Twinkies in, I guess, a sense are out there because these companies need to scale and make a lot of money, like even at scale, and they produce the cheapest good that they can that's addictive. And that's how you get a Twinkie. I wonder if that same dynamic is happening with content as well. Absolutely. Mm. I see information as food. Mm. Whenever I'm stuck with an information problem that I'm mm. trying to articulate, I just go to food as a metaphor. <laughs> the similarities between them are so apt. And what's interesting is we even already talk about information as food mm. without even realizing it. Mm. Think about it. You need to digest an idea. <laughs> you need to consume knowledge. Mm. These are food metaphors that mm. we give to information. Mm. And... In terms of the fiat money, in terms of how not to have people who are addicted to junk food or junk information, I don't know the answer, mm. but I agree with you. It's tragic how we burn our attention mm. on cheap content that gives us all BuzzFeed brain. And I think that it's one of the big surprises of the internet and of the world of information abundance where... We thought that the information superhighway was going to make us all really smart, <laughs> was going to allow us to just be super informed and to basically transcend the Hayekian limits of knowledge and create these all-knowing figures. Mm -hmm. And what we've had in exchange is rather than having really nuanced debates about what's happening in public policy or anything. We're fighting at the level of memes and the colors of dresses. <laughs> and we're having conversations about how presidential candidates are framed and their nicknames. And, hey, I didn't really like how he looked today, or I didn't really <laughs> like her dress. It is questions like that that will ultimately decide the presidential election. 
And that is tragic. And we should be very concerned that is where our society is going. But at the same time, almost every older person I talk to who 50, 60, 70, they'll talk about young people who they meet and they say, young people now are so much smarter and have so many more resources than we ever had. And they're really optimistic because of that. And so I always come back to this paradox of abundance. What's happening at the level of the masses is the opposite that's happening with the small number of people who are ambitious and who love ideas. And what you have to ask is, which one's going to win out? Like a lot of people who might ascribe to like a great man or woman theory of history, they might say, look, the top 0.1% is the only thing that matters. <laughs> that basically it's just a small number of people who move the world and everybody else is just a pawn. That's sort of one way of thinking about this. The second way of thinking about this is no, every human life is worth something and we should be making sure that we're not infecting minds with pointless propaganda and information that is giving us intellectual diabetes. <laughs> intellectual diabetes, that's a really cool concept. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of people are feasting on this free sort of, you know, sugary information diet. And that's something that I'm not sure necessarily gets fixed. As long as like it's free, I mean, it's hard, I guess, not to consume. So in a sense, I'm not sure I see much hope with Bitcoin here because I'm trying to figure out if Bitcoin will change this. I mean, I suppose people will have more of a sense of purpose and therefore will not be motivated to just endlessly entertain themselves and will instead be looking for information to do things instead of, hey, I'm bored, entertain me, which is, I think, how most people consume content. Do you think motivation work changes things here? The only thing I found mm -hmm. is to create filters mm. where the junk doesn't even mm. come to me. Mm. That's it. I've muted keywords <laughs> on Twitter. I have list of sites where I allow myself to be distracted. Mm. So for me, like, I've tried to just bump up the mm. quality of my distractions. Mm. Now, Marginal Revolution by Tyler Cowen and Alex mm. Tabarrok is like my go-to distraction. <laughs> so I'm like, you know what, at worst, I'm reading economics papers. <laughs> and I'm always trying to work on that. And what is really destructive is some combination of boredom mm. and abundance of mindless content mm. and not feeling some transcendent purpose mm. that you're living up to. And you can end up in these deathly spirals of the worst part mm -hmm. is things that look like virtues, mm. but are actually vices, mm. like the news. Mm. And I'm not saying that being informed is a waste of time. Being informed is important, probably at the margin overrated. Mm. But what I do strongly believe is that the mainstream publications that sell the idea of being informed are probably not making you informed. And it is probably other sources of media that do a much better job of helping you understand what's going on in the world. Yeah, there's been a corruption, I feel like, of, of pretty much every institution. They don't do what they say, mm -hmm. right? It's, I guess, what you would call literary uh, iron, uh, literal irony or something like that. Like, 
Department of Education. It's not, schools aren't educating, you know, like healthcare isn't about health. All of these things kind of get twisted around to mean something subtly different that has very different goals than what you would think they are. And that's sad because in a sense, like people look at what the intention should be and that's how they make their decisions on, on things like that. But that's more or less just sort of trusting what an authority is saying. This line of thinking mm -hmm. is the most interesting part of Orwell. Mm -hmm. Everybody talks about the surveillance mm -hmm. side of 1984. Mm -hmm. The most interesting side, in my opinion, is how language gets twisted. Mm -hmm. War is peace, freedom mm -hmm. is slavery. And there is something very double speaky about mm -hmm. what you're saying mm -hmm. that the Department of Education might even make us less educated. Mm -hmm. And the Department of Health comes in and we have rates of obesity that are higher than ever. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to make these correlations too strong, mm -hmm. but I do think that there's something very odd about the way that these institutions have these Orwellian linguistic habits mm -hmm. that come out. And I'm not sure what's going on there, but I suspect that history will have very interesting things to say about that. Yeah. Indeed. All right. So what are some of your long-term goals for Bitcoin? That's a question that I ask every guest. In what sense? What would you like to see in order to better achieve whatever world that you want to see? Mm -hmm. Well, I think first and foremost, Bitcoin has to do a better job of telling its story. Mm. Bitcoin has some kind of crossing the chasm problem. Mm. And look, time horizons here are important because if you talk, you got to say, is it even worse trying to get older people <laughs> to come onto team Bitcoin? Mm. My dad, my uncle, you know, they just think Bitcoin's ridiculous. Mm. And they're also in their late sixties, early seventies. Mm. So then I talk to young people mm -hmm. and for us, it's just obvious that cryptocurrencies <laughs> are going to be a huge part of the future. Like it's like, yes, Gravity goes down. Cryptocurrencies <laughs> are going to be part of the future. And so the question is, how much do you want to communicate to those people? Mm. Because it, you might not need to because mm. they're going to get old and the young will come in. And I think that then that will perpetuate the success of Bitcoin. The other thing, and I think that Coinbase has really tried to do a better job of this, but buying Bitcoin is still kind of scary. I mean, mm -hmm. I know that <laughs> when you first started buy buying Bitcoin, I mean, it's nothing compared to that. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't quite feel the same level of safety with buying Bitcoin as I do when I walk into a JP Morgan Chase branch <laughs> and I have the big tall pillars there and I feel like I'm part of this institution that that's going to stand the test of time and that if my money disappears somebody's going to come and save me and I don't know you know you could say somebody Bitcoin might say oh you got to go be a sovereign individual mm -hmm. take personal responsibility <laughs> I like that style of Bitcoin I do like the, that those ideas are rooted within crypto the sort of personal responsibility and then like a deep-seated, self-reliant conservatism is something mm -hmm. I've always liked about mm -hmm. the Bitcoin world. At the same time, a world in which everybody is just self-reliant and taking care of themselves, mm -hmm. that sounds like a Hobbesian dystopia, and <laughs> I don't think that's a good future. Yeah, I struggle to think about you know all the people that 
are trying to get into it, but don't really know how. In, in a sense, I think what you described is kind of a rhetorical problem in the sense that people don't feel that safety, so they're afraid to go do it. And I struggle to think about, you know, whether that means that we need to be holding their hands better or they need to have more courage. Mm -hmm. Like that's always sort of like if you do too much for them, then they're not going to really appreciate the, the responsibility that comes with them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you don't hold their hand at all, then, you know, they're going to have they're going to make mistakes and try things that they maybe shouldn't. So, yeah, I definitely see that creating more. I don't know, emotionally safer on-ramps or something like that, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's a really good chance that Satoshi's white paper ends up being the most influential thing that happened in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. There is a strong likelihood, and in a world of broad stagnation, I see Bitcoin as one of the few avenues and places where there's something deeply innovative happening. And it's not just in Bitcoin. It is the intellectual tapestry that Bitcoin takes of coordinating at scale that is going to be important for us in this century of new modes of sense-making that I think are embedded within to Bitcoin, of sound money, of extended time horizons. And I would like to see Bitcoin succeed not only because where we've gone with money printing and getting away from sound money in the safety and sense of the Bitcoin standard, I think that he paints a very compelling picture of what happened after 1914 and after 1971. I mean, we were only supposed to temporarily go off the gold standard <laughs> when Nixon spoke to the country. And it is now 49 years later and we're still here. And I think that it's important for Bitcoin to succeed because I think that what happens with money is like a leading indicator for what happens with a lot of parts of society. And it's a beacon and a fire with enough visibility that people are going to be looking to as if it's like a pulpit that everyone's going to be looking up mm -hmm. towards and figuring out how to coordinate at scale is something that we need to be better at. And I think Bitcoin's paving the way there. Mm. Yeah, I saw a tweet from Justin Moon recently, I think in the last few hours, actually, he said, I'm buying Bitcoin so my kids don't have to learn English. And hmm. it brought up the thought, okay, how much does money play a role in sort of the lingua franca of the world? And I imagine, I don't know if anyone's done a study, but I imagine it's highly correlated that, you know, whatever the dominant language of the world is happens to be whatever, you know, money is used as the reserve currency, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that that speaks to a fear that I have about Bitcoin, mm -hmm. not in the rational sense, but in an emotional sense of that's one of America's great advantages <laughs> that after Bretton Woods, we became the reserve currency. Mm -hmm. And that perpetuates America's dominance and safety mm -hmm. and there's something about losing that that is quite scary as an American. Yeah, exorbitant privilege is, is pretty exorbitant. I don't think people quite recognize like how much of an advantage the U.S. has over everybody else. And there's a reason why the smartest and the brightest people around the world are fighting their way to get to the United States, in large part because they know that there's an advantage. They can't necessarily name exactly what it is. But they know that there's an advantage here that you don't 
you can make a lot more money here doing the same thing than you can elsewhere and so on. All right. So anyway, I think we're getting on in this podcast. So let me just ask you, where can people find you? How, how can people contact you and so on? Yeah. So I have a podcast called the North Star Podcast, mm-hmm. which you might want to listen to conversations very similar to this. Mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter at David underscore Perel. And my website is Perel.com, P-E-R-E-L-L.com. And then you subscribe to my Monday Musings newsletter. Mm-hmm. I know. So I send out that newsletter every week, which you might want to be a part of. Yeah, there's also the Friday Finds too, right? <laughs> Friday Finds, I have a blast with that one. I mean, that one I'm not quite as, is not quite as big. Monday Musings is about 40,000 now. Friday mm-hmm. Finds about half of that. But that, I, I just try to share the craziest links that I could possibly find. Well, I mean, I really enjoyed that. And I think I read over the weekend the whole essay on like how someone would redesign education, grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. Yeah. And I was like... Oh my goodness, that is exactly what I ask people to do with my writing, actually, is, uh, you know, like, can you tell me if this is clear, if it's factual, and if this connects with you emotionally? That essay was The Lost Tools of Learning by Dorothy Sayers, Mm -hmm. given at Oxford University in 1947. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to what I try to do in the newsletter, Mm -hmm. escape the news cycle Mm -hmm. and find articles that make people say, how in the world did this guy find this thing? That's what I go for every single week. Yeah, I mean, it, it was very enlightening, and I definitely want to read more content like that. And if you're curious, please subscribe to David's newsletter. Thanks for hosting me. All right, thanks. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. David can be found at David underscore Perel on Twitter and Perel.com. Until next time. Fiat Belinda Est.